All right, without further ado, um, I'm very happy to welcome you to this panel. Uh, it's titled The State of Iraq's Economy One Year On from Alawi's White Paper. I'm Chloe Cornish. I'm the Financial Times' Middle East correspondent, and one of the countries that I cover is Iraq. Um, this comes one year on after a really drastic year for Iraq. 2020 was a bad year for more or less all economies around the world, but uh, few really hurt as badly as those that are dependent on oil. Iraq's GDP shrank by 11%. It had to devalue its currency. And as such, we saw a lot of the economic vulnerabilities that have been latent in the system exposed in a very dramatic way. So to talk us through this, we have some wonderful panelists and I'm, I'm very excited. I've, I've admired all of these panelists and their work. And so I'm really glad you're all here with us today. Uh, this session is being recorded. Um, so just to let you know that, uh, what the proceedings will go as follows. Each of our three speakers will speak for seven minutes and then there will be 25 minutes for questions at the end. So I'm looking forward to hearing all your very smart questions. Um, there is a Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. Uh, you can use that to submit questions. Um, and there's also interpretation. Uh, you, can get, you can get this by um, clicking on the interpretation bu button uh, on the bottom right-hand corner of your screens and choose the language appropriate for you. Um, I'm delighted to welcome the first panelist, Ahmed Tabakshali. He is an experienced capital markets professional. He's got over 25 years experience in US and Middle East and North African markets. And he's the chief strategist at the AFC Iraq Fund. He's also an adjunct assistant professor at the American University of Iraq Soleimani, a senior fellow at the Institute of Regional and International Studies at AUIS. And he's the non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. Iraq Initiative. He's a board member of Capital Investments, the investment banking arm of Capital Bank Jordan, and he also holds an MSc in Mathematics from the University of Oxford in the UK, a BSc in Mathematics from Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand, and a BSc in Mathematics from the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. Just in case you need any more places to take a, a, a mathematics degree, I'm sure Ahmed has thought of it already. Um, we're delighted to have Ahmed with us today. Uh, coming up after Ahmed will be Ali Al-Malawi. He is an independent consultant who specializes in institutional reform and Iraq's political economy. He has, was formerly the head of research at the Bayan Center in Baghdad and has written extensively on the challenges of reform, including on the public payroll. So it would be wonderful to hear Ali's thoughts on how the government can tackle uh, the issues of, uh, of, of that expanding public payroll that we all know so much about. And finally, I'm also really, really happy that we have Alia Mubayad with us today. She's an economist and former director of geoeconomics and strategy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Previously, she worked as chief economist for the MENA region at Barclays Bank in London. She has also worked at the World Bank as a senior economist responsible for research and policy dialogue, covering several countries in Europe and Central Asia, and held policy responsibilities in various economic institutions of the government of Lebanon. So very familiar with tricky economic situations. <laughs> Alia, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm now going to hand over to Ahmed for his opening thoughts. Uh, he'll be speaking for seven minutes and I do have a timer, Ahmed, uh, to make sure that we're all uh, fair and square. Um, I'm gonna start that now if you'd like to take it away. We're starting a timer right now. Okay, well, 
good morning or good afternoon all wonderful uh, to be on this webinar okay um, I mean we're looking a year after the initiation of the white paper and I think the thing has got to keep in mind for Iraq and many other countries in the Middle East uh, reform of the economic system is not a natural process I mean in a sense it, 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 it disrupts the whole pattern of legitimacy and relationships and, and patronage that is um, that is um, in, in, in Iraq in particular and in many other countries in the Middle East and therefore it's only embarked on when there is no other choice. Um, now the thing is, I mean, for uh, uh, for Iraq, I mean, uh, uh, Chloe started properly on that, perfectly on that. The thing is, you got to, I mean, like the my basic sort of starting point on uh, on Iraq. Oops. Okay, so I think I'm, um, I speak somewhat slower, I'm told, and my headset's not working very well, so I'll be uh, slow in there. Um, as I said, reform is not a natural uh, um, uh, thing for, uh, for Iraq, and I think the same for almost all um, countries in the Middle East, especially those that are dependent on a um, uh, on a commodity like oil it disrupts the whole pattern of pattern network it disrupts the whole pattern of legitimacy and therefore it's only embarked on when there is no absolute choice in the case of iraq um, i think as a consequence of our post-2003 political settlement our economy is extremely leveraged to external shocks whether positive or negative in particular you know the the, the external shocks for us take place in the form of um, demand for oil and oil prices now this last this played out you know in 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 full display last year when we had the devastation to the world economy as a result of COVID. And a consequence of that, you saw a decline in world GDP at a level that we have not seen before and with it a huge drop in demand for oil. Now for Iraq, that struck it extremely hard two reasons the first one is the severity of the crisis which has not been uh, we have not had anything as severe as that for the world but also for in, in particularly for us it's the advanced institutional and systematic decay that the system suffers from so in a sense you can see whereas last year world gdp declined by about 3.2 percent iraq's gdp declined by 11 but far more important than that is a decline in non-oil gdp that is officially at 8%, but I believe that the actual uh, non-oil GDP, especially if you take into account Iraq's non, uh, sorry, informal economy, which is not normally recorded, but that informal economy is heavily leveraged in retail hospitality and transportation, three areas that were extremely hard hit last year. So I think the figure of decline of 8% non-oil GDP is pretty much not um, applicable. Uh, I mean, Pretty much, um, you know, far more of that in the uh, informal economy, and that shows you the extreme hurt that we've had. Now, the same leverage um, works in exactly the reverse way when the world economy is rebounding, and currently the world economy is seeing a, a, a significant rebound uh, after declining. I mean, again, we're talking the world, and we're talking, um, uh, you know. Uh, overall, uh, from a decline of 3.2% to an increase of 6%. That's a significant rebound. And anybody who's been in the developed world, you can see that there's a huge pent-up demand, partly funded by uh, the government's support in terms of fiscal support for, uh, uh, for the population. And as a result, you have a significant rebound with it demand for oil picked up significantly, as well as the unprecedented OPEC uh, 
plus adherence to the agreement that we have not seen a firm adherence like like the current one as a result combined iraq is seeing a a a, a significant rebound in activity and you can see that um, in many ways the first one i uh, i wrote something in which by i borrowed um, the phrase from uh, the Bank of England's chief economist, who said, uh, described it as the economics of cold springs, crouching tigers, and chicken lickens. I mean, in the sense for Iraq, you can see that in the macro indicators, the macro indicators are extremely uh, positive. Um, they they show, for example, if you look at money supply, which is basically broad money M2, that has seen um, a significant pickup in 2020, uh, sorry 2021, and after a meaningful recovery in 2020. So even with last year, you see average, the uh, average growth year over year in M2 has been something like 12% accelerating to something like 19% year to date in 2021. What drove that? One is the government borrowing last year. We borrowed something about 27 uh, trillion Iraqi dinars to plug the holes in finances. And this year, they're recovering all prices. So you see that. And part of that, we can see it in um, consumer confidence. Um, obviously, it's not uniform. It's not everywhere. But you can see it, for example, if we look at what's called mobility data. So we look at something like Google's mobility data, which basically show the pattern of activity um, or, uh, or movements in certain areas um, rel relative to a, a month that is pre-COVID. So the comparisons I'm giving right now are to what the world was like before COVID came to the scene in full swing in February of last year. So for example, in, 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 if you look at something like grocery and pharmacy, that's up 150% above those levels. Also, if you look at uh, retail recreation, that's up more than 50%. And that's a significant recovery. Other areas we can see that is in uh, USD sales in the auction window. I have to say, it's not a proper auction, but it's called an auction window, stay with that for now. That, um, after a decline, obviously, for the year, it's actually back, if you look at it in terms of USD, it's back to just under uh, pre-COVID. And if you look at it in, in IQD, because we want to take into account the, uh, the devaluation of the TNR, that's way ahead of there. So actually, there's a huge demand for imports uh, for, uh, by Iraq, if you can see it there. And finally, I would say that we see it in anecdotal how am I doing, Chloe? 10 seconds, Ahmed. Oh, okay, so very quickly, uh, you can see it in the in, in the in, in, in activities in Baghdad in which construction activities are booming. Net, net, where does that put us with reform? It pretty much takes the incentive away from reform. The, the white paper started some significant reforms, and I can answer questions on that later, but the, the impetus for that is gone, and I cannot see it being placed unless we have a new uh, decline, which is pretty much unlikely, at least for the next two or three years, and again, I can expand on that mm. later, but mm. thank you for that, Chloe. Thank you, Ahmed. That was a great um, quick overview uh, of kind of the challenges uh, ahead. Um, now I'm going to hand over to Ali, who's going to take us uh, through, through some other aspects. Thank you, Chloe. Uh, it's good to be with you all. Um, and thank you to the organizers uh, of this um, online conference. Um, so uh, I'd start off by saying that, you know, last year I wrote a paper for Chatham House looking at um, public sector reform. And it was really an attempt to reflect on, you know, the experiences of previous Iraqi governments um, um, at uh, reform measures. Um, and uh, in doing so, I kind of tried to propose a set of um, inbuilt assumptions about 
um, what is possible and, and what isn't possible given the, you know, the um, political climate, given the existing context. And it kind of coincided with the formation of the Kalimi government. Um, and so I, I, you know, I just to run through very, very quickly um, some of these inbuilt assumptions that I proposed, uh, because what I'd like to do in, in the short time that I have is to uh, try to propose some new assumptions based on the experience of um, the Kalimi government in trying to uh, push through reforms through the white paper. So, um, you know, for example, what, what I said was that, you know, institutional overhaul is very, very difficult. Um, it's better to focus on, you know, incremental change, which is probably more likely to, to uh, yield results. Um, secondly, you know, being too ambitious um, and um, proposing, you know, um, uh, large scale reforms can often backfire because, you know, the, the key is to try to generate some momentum um, and generating momentum requires um, exhibiting the um, possibility of change um, and and often you know when you're too ambitious um, you don't end up achieving um, very much and then thirdly you know creating new administrative units um, within government departments tends to work a little bit better than trying to uh, reform existing and uh, antiquated um, uh, government departments and trying to you know incentivize them um, to uh, embrace reforms so, so based on these assumptions, I think we can propose you know, new assumptions as well, um, because you know this is not an exhaustive list. And 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 the first one that I would say is that you know expressing uh, reform, uh, expressing a willingness to undertake reforms, um, is not the same as um, really embracing reform and having sufficient political will to do so, um, because you know the language of reform has now become part and parcel of. Um, both the political and public discourse uh, in, in Iraq. So if you look at, um, if you listen to any session in parliament, every single member of parliament will talk about the imperative of reform. Um, but of course we know that there's a lot of resistance, there's a lot of vested interest in maintaining the status quo. Um, and so simply expressing support for reform means very little, I, I think. I think we have to be a lot, a lot more critical and actually quite cynical um, when we hear this. And I think this is particularly relevant for you know, international development agencies, because you know, when you sit in front of um, a director general, for example, who, who will say all the right things, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that person is actually committed uh, to undertaking reforms. There is an, an incentive for a DG or a minister to engage with international organizations. It brings a lot of prestige to that individual. Sometimes it brings, um, you know, resources that he or she may not have. Um, but, you know, as I said, I mean, it, it's very important to um, really question um, the, the, the fundamentals, the, the fundamental dynamics that are going on um, within, within ministries and try to understand why they're actually um, uh, either pro or, or reticent to, to reforms. The second assumption I would say is that um, there's, a, there's a real internal logic to public resistance or public uh, opposition to certain reform measures. Um, you know, so for example, you know, everyone, if you ask anyone in Iraq, they're all in favor of diversifying Iraq's economy. Um, you know, no one in Iraq will say that we need to really rely solely on oil revenues um, to, um, you know, support Iraq's economy. But then if you ask them, well, okay, um, we now need to broaden the tax base. Uh, we need to increase, for example, income tax. Then all of a sudden, you know, everyone is, um, um, everyone suddenly, you know, becomes very reticent about this. And, um, you know, there is an internal logic to this. Um, of course, you know, when it comes to tax, for example, no one in the world really wants to pay more tax than um, he or she is currently paying. Um, and it's the same in Iraq. 
But, um, you know, in, in terms of um, broadening the tax base in Iraq, I mean, there were three attempts by this current government to do so. Um, first, and um, immediately after the government was formed, um, the Qadhimi government tried to um, uh, do so by uh, applying income tax to uh, allowances on salaries. And uh, the government had to very quickly backtrack on that um, because of political resistance. Uh, and also, I think, public op opposition. And then secondly, trying to incorporate this into the 2021 budget, that particular provision was then scrapped by parliament. And then uh, Finance Minister Alawi tried to do this after the budget was passed, actually, through executive decree, uh, but the cabinet then rejected this. Um, again, I think mean, we're in an election year, and so clearly there wasn't much of a political incentive to do so. Um, the electricity reforms is another area where, you know, clearly, if you look at it on paper, um, there may be a financial incentive on paper for um, consumers um, to, um, to, to pay for electricity in exchange for um, phasing out the um, uh, private generators. Um, in terms of kilowatt hours, you're paying actually less if you end up paying for electricity. Um, but, but of course, there are other considerations, other calculations that consumers have. And one of them is this idea of setting a precedent. I mean, it's, it's very, very... Um, and it, it, it's something that's very much um, within the, the public conscience when you have to, you know, literally, physically uh, dip into your pocket and pay the state for um, a basic service. That's something that Iraqis tend not to want to go down in terms of that path. Um, and so um, really trying to understand the, the complexities of how consumers and ordinary Iraqis um, make calculations about reforms is very important. Um, thirdly, I think strategic communications is critical. Um, it's not enough, and we've seen this during the white paper, the unveiling of the white paper, it's not enough for ministers to stand behind podiums and um, to, to try to lay out you know, um, their, their plans for reforms, because you know, those that have vested interests in opposing reforms um, have much more sophisticated um, uh, uh, platforms in terms of uh, trying to win over the public um, and we saw this in the devaluation of the Iraqi dinar. Um, now, whether you agree with the, the devaluation or not, I think you know, it's quite debatable from a policy point of view. But what we saw, for example, is that the public communications uh, campaign against the devaluation was far, 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 far stronger than the mm. government's attempt to convince the public. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so you know, I think it's, it's very, very important to be um, mindful of the fact that winning over the public um, in, in, in a much more elaborate way is, is, is really important. It's not just about appearing on TV and, um, you know, once mm -hmm. or twice and, and trying to um, explain, um, you know, reforms in a, in a, in a straightforward way. Mm. And I know that I'm running out of time, but... Um, uh, yeah. Ali, if, if, it's, if it's a very, very important point, can you make it as, as briefly as possible? Because uh, we're over seven minutes now. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, I, I would just say that, you know, having an integrated approach is very important. So, you know, not thinking about reforms in a piecemeal way, but actually thinking about how reforms are actually interconnected and, and ensuring that when you propose reforms, you, you propose them as a package rather than, um, you know, within, you know, silos. So, you know, banking reform. Mm -hmm. reform. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, thank you very much, Ali. And uh, I think a lot of us will recognise some of the points you're making about um, a reticence towards increasing the tax base because people really don't want to pay taxes and often don't want to pay for electricity and as you said it's a very big public relations issue as well to try to explain why those things will ultimately benefit the state so thank you very much for raising raising those points
Um, we're now going to turn to Alia. Uh, hopefully, Beirut's uh, internet and electricity is is uh, is being helpful. Alia, are you with us? Yes, I am. I am with you. Great. The floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Chloe, and thank you uh, for inviting me to join uh, uh, Ali and uh, uh, Ahmed. Um, I mean, I have three main ideas I want uh, to say uh, um, to respond to to this uh, to, to the subject of this uh, of this uh, web uh, of this session, which is really trying to assess um, the success of the reform agenda on the economic front of uh, government of, of Al Qasimi. The first point is. Is, is that we need to contextualize our evaluation and and uh, uh, and put it in the both the local, uh, global, and regional context. The second point uh, is that um, I think the response of the authorities to these uh, shocks um, uh, um, that Ahmed talked about was the right one, and and the white paper is only one element uh, of it, and the most important. And has started the first steps of of the reform. But uh, as necessary as it is, and this is the third point that I will explain, uh, is that um, uh, the re the required reforms um, are much more far-reaching. And it and in the next phase post-election, we need much uh, more bolder, inclusive. Um, and uh, a, a transparent engagement of the public uh, and in the policy making in order to ensure the success of these economic reforms. So on the first point, I think let's really go back to the context in which the uh, government Al-Qasimi came. I mean, they came at a time where uh, um, uh, the, uh, the global economy was hit by a multiplicity of shock, the COVID pandemic, which hit Iraq badly and exposed its fragility, uh, particularly in its ability to deliver basic vital services to stem the impact of, of the COVID uh, pandemic on the economy and more importantly, the health sector. Uh, it also uh, came in a context where the, the, this, uh, uh, this pandemic shock uh, uh, led to an ensuing oil price shock that put significant stress on Iraq's external and fiscal position, but also, as Ahmed explained, a, a significant contraction of both oil and non-oil uh, economy, but in particular, the non-oil economy, which is uh, uh, supposed to uh, um, create job and provides um, uh, uh, for, uh, for the youthful population. Um, uh, and it's interesting that this non-oil GDP contraction was exactly 8-9% uh, uh, and, and that we're still not uh, uh, seeing the offshoots now of what um, uh, Ahmed called a, a, a fast-paced recovery. And the question is, uh, how will the reforms accompany this fast-paced recovery so that it's not only a rebound, but rather a lasting recovery? In just the World Bank um, um, uh, estimates uh, that Uh, the, sh the COVID-19 poverty in Iraq by seven to four of 110,000 uh, IQD per person per month. So, so there is a proportionate impact of these shocks on, on this informal sector, uh, which hits obviously the poorest segment of the population, according to the World Bank. And this is quite important context in which the, uh, the, the government of Mr. Al-Qasimi came. And let's not forget that it came at, at, at a time where the socio-political tension were, were running high on the back of major socioeconomic grievances. But more importantly, also it came at a, at a, at a, after a government uh, whose response uh, to these 
uh, protest and to these socioeconomic grievances, or and therefore weakening further Iraq's fiscal sustainability prospect by adding greater rigidity uh, uh, to the budget and therefore limiting uh, the margin of maneuver of any prospective I mean, or, or successive government which uh, the academy government had to deal with. So all in all, I think uh, this uh, this context in which they're involving external shocks, erosions of buffer. Uh, a wider uh, deficit and lower margin of maneuver. So let's not forget that as we evaluate this period of economic reform, let's try and con contextualize it. So, so what was the response? And that's my second point. I think the response was was the right one. I mean, in 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 the sense that uh, at least we saw. Uh, despite basically the limited margin of maneuver on the fiscal front because of the fall in, in, in revenues and, and the contraction in the economy, obviously Iraq did not have a lot of fiscal space. It, it, it couldn't uh, affect the large stimuluses that we have seen uh, in other oil exporting countries, whether in the region or elsewhere. So there, um, obviously, its margin of maneuver was limited. However, it, it managed to spend on the social uh, uh, front in order to spend and uh, secure the vaccine, in, including through uh, donations and, and, and grants, but also uh, for the Central Bank of Iraq to be to mitigate the impact by providing liquidity measures, moratorium on the, and that was uh, 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 2021, 20, as, as we were going out uh, of the uh, difficult phase of the COVID impact. Having said that, I think the other important thing that it done was exactly to uh, avoid a spending when you don't have enough fiscal space. Um, and this is the importance of, of the white paper. It came here, it said, well, we are under an extreme shock. We, Iraq doesn't have and fiscal space, we cannot spend more, we have to, to, to model. And this is the time uh, to do it now by recognizing the problem and devising, I would say, a quite a comprehensive, complicated, ambitious policy framework. But I think this is very important because this is exactly uh, what Iraq lacked, what, uh, a policy framework that adds some clarity and some predictability for policies, um, uh, uh, especially when a country is subject to these uh, high vol uh, level of volatility uh, of its main, um, as a main commodity uh, producer. So I think it's, it's extremely important to stress this element uh, of a clear policy framework. Uh, and this is important both for Iraqis themselves, for Iraqi private sector, for Iraqi uh, uh, government and bureaucrats to see the context in which policy should be uh, uh, should be led, but also for us, for a person like me who works in market and I need, uh, and for investors who are invested in Iraq and need to uh, uh, understand uh, the level uh, the level of risk. Uh, I think the depreciation of the currency was also an important element as, as um, uh, even though it had important social implication, because obviously there was an overvaluation of the exchange rate, in, uh, uh, given the, the the weakening of the current and and the fiscal mm. uh, uh, balances, and I think the depreciation helped in also containing uh, the fiscal uh, uh, the fiscal impact uh, mm. of the shock. And I think importantly was uh, the some there was some elements of the reform in the 2021 budget, like the introduction of excise taxes, the better mm. targeting of benefits, the improved electricity tariff correction. 
-hmm. And also we saw some important financial sector reforms mm -hmm. started, uh, notably in terms of the governance of the finance. Um, so the response in terms of the reform was uh, a focus on in the next phase. Uh, sorry, Chloe. Um, Ali, I think we're, we're about um, to time now. If you've got one last point, um, could, if you could make it succinctly, that would be appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, so, so what I'm saying is that the, the next, uh, the, the third phase is the more important, uh, most, uh, third point is the most important in terms of what should be the reform agenda. I, sh I think, uh, uh, I think uh, uh, the, folk, the fiscal reform should continue to, to take central stage in the next phase in Iraq, uh, uh, a pre-election and post-election, the current preparation of the 2022-24 budget that the Ministry of Finance initiated is, is, is very important in anchoring the fiscal framework into the elections. Uh, we should all support that in the next few months and days uh, um, until we have the political transition and we hope it will not be, be delayed. But mm -hmm. I think also uh, the priority should be refocused again on the private sector, which I can elaborate uh, um, in the discussion. Great. Alia, thank you very much um, for giving us as well a bit of a sense of how investors need their thinking too. It's uh, really helpful to frame this conversation in the global kind of context as well. Um, so we are now going to hand over for questions. Um, you've all been submitting your questions using the Q&A function. Thank you very much. We've got loads of great questions. I'm gonna ask the panelists um, if I could remind uh, all the panelists to speak slowly and calmly, despite how excited we are um, with all the, these, these great questions, um, that'll be, be good. I'll um, direct the questions towards you know, each of you. Um, so the, there's a few questions here about sustainable development actually. So I'm gonna start with, with that theme. Uh, Majid is asking, how robust was the white paper in addressing sustainable development, protecting the environment for future generations and contributing to the UN supported goals? Um, so as the person with the most involvement with the white paper, I'm gonna ask uh, Ahmed to take that question about how robust the white paper was in addressing sustainable development goals. Sorry, I'm just like going, going unmuting myself. Okay, how sustainable? Um, I think the, the question, as, as valuable as it is and as important as it is, overlooks a crucial um, element uh, of the white paper. Keep in mind when the white paper was written, uh, we were last year, um, throughout the summer of, uh, uh, so the summer of 2020, when the world was collapsing, and the idea was to save Iraq from an imminent collapse. Uh, the white paper had elements which hope which would, would, would wanted to deal with the uh, stopping the bleeding, so to speak, because the budget was bleeding, and secondly, uh, to begin the uh, change. Now, within that, within that, ultimately, if the white paper was to succeed, sorry, I'm again told I should be speaking louder. I apologize. Um, again, if the white paper was to succeed and uh, you implement a number of items, then that certainly would lead to a positive environment. Because if you think of uh, the improvements in the electricity sector, one of the major ones would be uh, using more gas as opposed to using um, heavy crude oil or black oil. So in a sense, yes, the question is extremely important, but the white paper was 
did not have the luxury of time and the luxury of preparing for something very long term. It aimed to uh, solve the immediate fiscal crisis, uh, uh, stopping Iraq from an imminent collapse, and then putting the country on the path. One of the main things I would say at the end, if anybody has actually read the paper, you would hear clearly that in the first page, it says the idea is to um, repair the damage, get, get the country on track so that the country can decide on its future path. And certainly sustainability and environmental sustainability is a crucial part. Uh, so I don't know if I answered you directly or indirectly, but um, there it is. Thanks, thanks, Ahmed. That's helpful. I think what we've what we've understood from that is the white paper wasn't really designed to address these sort of sustainable development questions so much. It was really a kind of emergency measure, um, as as the authors saw it at the time. Um, right, great. Thanks for answering that. Um, I'd like to direct the next question to Ali. Um, Virginia uh, says she agrees with you in that one of the major issues in terms of collecting taxes and so on is the disconnect between people wanting to pay for services and, and receiving those services. How do we move beyond that disconnect? How do we convince people that you know, it's a good idea to pay for services? Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very difficult um, challenge, um, particularly if you're, you know, as a country, as a people, we're not used to paying for electricity, for water, for other public services, and, and also because they're actually very unreliable. So if you think about, you know, having to pay for electricity, if you do that and then you forego um, the backup of having a, a private generator, then what do you do when you have a blackout, which actually happened, um, you know, just this summer? Um, and so I think there's, there are good, as I said, there's an internal logic to this. There's... Um, there's a lot of, you know, rational thinking behind why um, going down this path, um, it may not be in people's uh, interests. And, and so I would go back to this point about, you know, communicating in a very strategic way, um, because I think you can make the case um, for, for these reform measures. The problem is, how do you counteract the, the, the disinformation that exists? Um, by those with, with vested interests. And, and this is extremely difficult, um, but, but I think what public communications can do is it can uh, generate leverage for the government, um, particularly when you have very very weak political base in parliament, when you have a lot of opposition. Uh, creating leverage um, by winning over the public um, is, is a way to offset the, um, uh, you know, the opposition, the political opposition that you will inevitably um, uh, encounter um, within parliament. Um, so yeah, it's really just not, a, it's not an easy uh, um, issue to tackle, but um, you know, over time, I think through concerted efforts to communicate um, in a consistent way with the public, um, you know, perhaps you know, something can be achieved over the long term. Thanks, Ali. That's a, I just wanted to ask a follow-up question. I mean, you mentioned that service delivery is so rubbish most of the time, you know, that, that people don't have any incentive to, to pay. Um, is this a chicken and egg situation? I mean, is there not going to be an improvement in services until people start paying? Or, I mean, because otherwise, how do you, because you're never going to be able to convince people unless they see some, some real benefit, right? It is in many ways a chicken and egg situation because, you know, you need investment, for example, in the power sector um, uh, in order to improve um, performance. Um, of course, you know, financial in, in, uh, investment is just one of, of, of many other um, obstacles 
in terms of improving services. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it's 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 very difficult to to convince people. What I think and what I've tried to sort of elaborate in terms of um, you know my my writing is to to demonstrate that change is possible on a very small scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think you know when you try to do that. Um, you, you will slowly, slowly convince people, maybe not on a, on a national level, but at least on a local level, that mm. actually um, some reform measures are in their interests. And, yeah. and then, you know, you can um, incrementally try to um, expand that in terms of coverage um, across the country. Okay, great. Thanks, Ali. Um, the next question I'm going to put to Alia. Um, Laura is asking, what signs might we be looking for after the elections that the new government is willing to reform? As investors, what would you be looking at um, from what signs and signals would you be looking at from the new government that would give you some confidence that that the new guys are, in fact, like ready to do this? I'm, I'm looking for Alia. Uh, she is she here? Oh, oh, there we go. Uh, Thank you for the question and regards to Laura. So I think the first uh, important sign for me um, um, and for many people looking at Iraq's uh, economic prospect is the importance of continuity of policy reform agenda. I think there has been a huge effort uh, and I'm looking at Ahmed, uh, that has been put by Iraq and um, uh, this uh, comprehensive and social reform agenda that has been supported uh, uh, and uh, by the international community. And we have seen uh, a lot of uh, goodwill by, uh, through the International Support Group for Iraq Conference and, and other uh, uh, partners. So it is extremely important for the next government uh, to um, uh, to move ahead um, on, on the same path, while, of course, adapting it uh, to both the local, regional, and global uh, context. A second uh, in, uh, related um, is really uh, sort of preserve some of the institutions that have been created or some of the processes that have been created uh, through the implementation uh, uh, process of the um, of the uh, a white paper. I think by now, and Ahmed can correct me if I'm wrong, and Ali, uh, is that there has been now a, uh, a reform council established. There are uh, important uh, um, working groups or, or, or task forces that are um, uh, uh, following on the on the reform uh, agenda. Uh, and I think the institutionalization uh, of these reform within the public sector and, and the uh, consultation mechanisms with the public and the private sector should also be preserved. But in terms of policies, and I'll end here, I think, as I mentioned, for me, um, uh, the, uh, the fiscal uh, uh, agenda, uh, anchoring it in a medium-term fiscal framework, as uh, Minister Alawi is trying to do now with the preparation for the 22-24 uh, uh, budget, is essential because it will give it will give visibility. Uh, uh, it will take into consideration uh, the expected uh, uh, changes uh, that we know are globally driven uh, to the uh, energy uh, uh, landscape and therefore to oil prices uh, for Iraq. And therefore, um, uh, also be able uh, um, uh, by uh, putting in place this medium-term fiscal framework uh, along with the 
public financial management reform, the procurement reforms, um, also the debt management reforms uh, that are all related to the public finance agenda. I think this is critical to continue in order to reduce the risk premium of Iraq and, and I'll end here because this relates to market. Iraq's uh, uh, risk is um, uh, a heavily priced uh, uh, and, and I think any government that needs access to finance to meet Iraq's development financing needs in the future uh, will need to reduce its cost of borrowing and the fiscal reform agenda should be at the center. Great, thanks Alia, very, very comprehensive. Um, so now we've all got our checklist of, of uh, signs we can look for post-elections uh, to see whether or not there's a government who's committed to continuing those fiscal reforms for the medium term. Um, I think we should get into some of our juicier questions now. Uh, and I'm again gonna turn to Ahmed. Um, there is a question about the KRG and uh, Baghdad fiscal relationship. Is there any chance that these relationships will become more transparent with a new government uh, or that the existing agreements will actually be implemented? Where do you think this relationship is going? Are we going to see more transparency or are we going to see the sort of same old model that we've, we've come to know and love? Yeah, come to, come to know and love. Yes, absolutely. Now, the thing is going to keep in mind that all prior agreements between the federal government and the regional government, as manifested through uh, the budget agreement, have been economically unsustainable. So anybody who looks at the numbers uh, really come to the conclusion that these agreements cannot be implemented. Uh, part of the differences and really answers the question is there is a huge difference between two sides on the nature of the federation. Uh, on the one side, you got the uh, federal government sees a very strong center, and the KRG uh, sees a, on the contrary, a strong region. That pretty much underlines the the real reason why these agreements fail um, historically. Now, the current agreement, uh, for the first time, I think since um, since the founding of the state, began to address that. Uh, it basically addressed the issue of the remuneration of the KRGs and international oil companies. In the past, the federal government has pretty much um, uh, sort of uh, wanted not to know that part. Uh, once they've addressed that, once they address that, that seems to have solved the, uh, at least one part. Currently, the agreement, again, is unsustainable because there's not been much uh, discussion or actually much details uh, paid to numbers. There was a political expediency, but not a, an economic one. Uh, one of it was seen a few months ago when there was a lot of discussion of is the KRG, will the KRG get its share or not? And there were many um, arguments of saying, wow, look, the federal government is not paying them. Now, the thing is, as of June, as of the data available as of June, if the agreement was implemented, the KRG would have had to pay the federal government money as opposed to the other way around. Partly um, is that the KRG's share is dependent on actual expenditures, not budget expenditures. So if you look at that and you count the figures by end of June, you will see that in fact, the KRG would have to pay the federal government as opposed to the other way around because the agreement mm. they made, so I'll end it there particularly. What, they partly solved it. And I think that shows a political will on both parties to come up to some sort of solution. And they, in now we have two months in a row in which the KRG was paid $200 billion a month as a stopgap measure until year end when they reconcile the figures again. 
Mm, great. Thanks very much, Ahmed. That's that's very helpful and good to hear that there might be some positives actually to, to take away from, from recent events. Um, so we're, 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 we're getting on for time. So I'm going to start um, putting some of these questions together. Um, so I'd like to ask this question to Ali. Um, uh, Louisa is asking, um, given the structural challenges uh, that we, we know uh, all about, what kind of economic reforms are really achievable? Um, and I'd like to match that with an, another question from, from Will, who is asking, now that the oil is flowing again and the money is, is back in the treasury, has that killed the need for, for reform, the kind of political need for reform? So um, what's, what's really kind of realistic uh, to see as economic reforms, given the fact that now oil is flowing back and, you know, maybe, as the question implies, the need for reform has kind of fallen off the political agenda in, in, uh, to some extent. Are you, are you happy to tackle that question, Ali? Yeah, sure. I mean, so, so typically in, in, in Iraq, when you see, you know, um, a greater fiscal space, th there does tend to be, you know, less in incentive to, to, you know, to, uh, to make very drastic reforms or to uh, make or to um, you know, make decisions that are very difficult. Um, but having said that, I think you know, a lot of the um, proposals that are outlined in the white paper, um, they are actually implementable. I mean, they, they can be implemented. Um, I think it's all about the approach rather than you know, the, the conditions that, that exist. So for example, you know, I think leadership is, is critical to all of this. Um, as I tried to outline some of these assumptions, um, if, if you're not fully behind the reforms that you're proposing and if you're not um, embracing them in a way that is effective against those that oppose it then they're undoubtedly going to fail um, and so um, i'm a little bit more optimistic i mean of course the fundamentals of the next government are probably not going to change i mean there's very little indication that the new government um, however way it looks is going to be fundamentally different to, to previous governments um, uh, but that's no reason to um, you know, to give up and to think that actually none of these reforms are actually um, implementable. I think we need to really take stock of the lessons of the past and the, in particular the failures and then um, try to um, adapt and, and really be a lot more agile about how we undertake uh, reforms. Great, thank you, Ali. Let's uh, have to be more, I like the idea about being more agile about reforms, maybe trying to get a few quick wins a bit quicker and show people that you know, it's serious and that it can help um, in the long term. Um, okay, we have two, uh, two questions I'm gonna roll together and I'm going to ask um, the panelists to, to answer because I'm not sure who is best really, it's best place to answer these questions. Um, but the first is, um, Someone is asking about the rumors that the Southern oil marketing company, uh, SOMO, is under the control of the um, Fateh Alliance, um, which is the militia-linked alliance in Parliament. Um, do any of you have any insight into whether or not that is correct? And um, the second question is to do with corruption and how much corruption is undermining Iraq as a state um, in a similar vein to what has been seen in Afghanistan, where corruption is sometimes being said to be one of the causes for, you know, state collapse. Um, so anyone want to answer the question about um, whether or not SOMO is, is under the control of, uh, of, of, of militias or, um, uh, sorry, the state oil marketing company. I'm sorry, that's uh, my, my bad for uh, getting the acronym wrong there. Um, 
anyone would like to answer that question and, and also to maybe follow up on whether or not corruption, you know, how, how big of a problem is corruption for Iraq? I mean, I would just say that, you know, just broadly speaking, if you look at all of Iraq's ministries and government departments, um, they don't, they don't, they don't exist as fiefdoms as they did before, I think, in terms of, um, you know, one unitary political actor having complete control over an institution. Um, I think it's a lot more layered than often it is, is written about. I mean, you, you look at, for example, director generals within ministries. They don't all belong to one single party. And, and over time, over the past 18 years, those positions have, have changed hands. Um, ministries have, have changed hands between parties. And so it's a very, very complex picture when you try to um, you know, sketch it out. And I think that's the same um, when we talk about SOMO or, or other government departments. Great. Thank you, Ali. That was a very diplomatic uh, answer. And um, I apologize again for getting the acronym uh, wrong. Um, I think probably in about the corruption, um, we are all quite aware that the corruption is at the root of a lot of Iraq's problems. But as you said, Ali, it's often a very complicated picture um, and just painting it all with one big corruption brush sometimes maybe stops us from being able to solve problems or give kind of real solutions uh, to problems. Um, okay, so moving on to two, our two last questions. Um, this one I'm gonna address to Alia. Um, the, in recent weeks, we've seen a lot of more focus on gas and foreign investment because of this blockbuster deal with Total. Do you think that is gonna continue uh, maybe with the next government, a focus on you know, gas uh, and also attracting more foreign investment? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, of course, the, the focus on gas is, is also driven by the need to, uh, to diversify and, 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 and be attentive to, to the changing uh, uh, demand landscape for, uh, uh, for, uh, for, for hydrocarbons, but also the climate change uh, agenda. So, uh, so obviously, I, I do not think that, that the focus on gas uh, will wane. On the contrary, I think um, investing in this uh, sector and making sure uh, uh, that uh, uh, that Iraq uh, has the right uh, um, uh, policies uh, related to that is 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 going to uh, to remain with us uh, given also the global climate agenda as I mentioned. Uh, as for the global deals, I mean I think this is this has to do um, obviously with two aspects. Of course, uh, the geopolitical uh, uh, developments and the interest of uh, large I, uh, um, IOCs, notably Total, in remaining engaged. Uh, in the uh, um, in in the Levant, um, in uh, uh, Iraq primarily, uh, we'll see what happens uh, if the JCPOA uh, negotiation moves on, and 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 what role uh, will uh, will global companies, um, if at all, um, um, have, um, and and Total is. Is is known to to be uh, quite uh, um, uh, interested in 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 that uh, in that um, uh, country too, and there are linkages between Iran and Iraq in the future. Uh, so so geopolitical developments will, to a large extent, um, be essential uh, for uh, the progress on these um, on these deals. Uh, but I think the other uh, more important one is. Uh, is the continuation of the reform of the reform agenda? I mean, uh, it's not the, these large big deals that are going to uh, provide for the jobs uh, that young Iraqis uh, uh, need. Uh, this is uh, uh, one um, uh, area of uh, 
important to the to improving the electricity and the uh, agenda to boosting uh, oil and gas production in Iraq. But ultimately, uh, powering the non-oil sector is what is uh, critical, and that has to be uh, uh, through refocusing on uh, on the reforms that will allow for these big deals to survive and to attract maybe other ones. Thank you, Alia. That's very helpful um, uh, to understand the kind of deal in that context as well. Um, we had a comment in the chat just saying that um, there's no economists on the panel, but I just wanted to assure you that, <laughs> that Alia is an economist <laughs> um, and that both of our other panelists are very, very experienced in the field. Um, so just to assure you that that is not necessarily factually accurate. Um, one last question um, as, as we wrap up and thank you everyone for your wonderful questions and for all your attention. Um, it's been amazing to see, uh, to see 73 people here um, with us today. Um, so an, an intriguing question um, by, from an anonymous attendee about where the government gets its economic advice is there an advisory board that the government turns to? And if so, where do these economists come from? Are they university trained? I mean, where does the government get its economic advice? And I think I'll probably ask that question to Ahmed. You give me the hardest question. Sorry. Yes, I think there is a board. I think basically you've got to look at the white paper too. The white paper in a sense, the, its governance structure, which aims to have a sustainability of the reform process, has a higher reform council, uh, of which it has a number of uh, government appointees, but also some outside directors who come from academia, who come from practicing economics and so forth. And the same thing happened with the writing of the white paper. Some were Iraqis, some were uh, external Iraqis, but yes, uh, that is the case. More Great, thanks. That was a very succinct answer. Um, does anyone have any final questions that they'd like um, they'd like to put to any of the panelists, um, or or can I can I finish off with a question? Okay, um, looks like we don't have any further questions. Um, I just wanted to ask you all, actually. Um, what oh, oh we do have a question um what about the role of the world bank okay um so i think this is about external foreign foreign support for um for iraq um how important is that going to be for iraq going forward it's often something that's very difficult to explain to people why iraq needs external support given that it is pumping uh, so much oil and has in in good times such high high revenues um, but what can external support do to help Iraq uh, rebuild a diversified economy? I, I can try to take a, take a stab at it, but obviously Ahmed and Ali can, I can add. I, I mean, um, obviously as an observer and what I know is that the World Bank is a key uh, development partner uh, for Iraq, has been for a long while, but also particularly as uh, uh, we entered into the, the phase of, uh, 
of serious policy frameworks uh, uh, that have been uh, established by the white paper and the drive of the Minister of Finance to focus both on economic reform, but also uh, to mitigate uh, the impact of the COVID in terms of the support for the uh, for the social sector. So the role of the World Bank as one of the development partners is essential and, and seems to be growing in Iraq. Um, uh, and this is, uh, this is quite positive. And as a world ex-World Bank economist myself, I can, I can definitely vouch that uh, the kind of uh, support that the World Bank provides, as was put uh, in the comments, uh, uh, in terms of the technical assistance, the analytical um, and intellectual uh, uh, analysis that, 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 that uh, Iraqi uh, and the World Bank staff uh, uh, do together uh, is, is, uh, is usually extremely helpful, both for the authorities, but also for the public opinion, because as Ali mentioned, um, the uh, a lot of this uh, of these analysis is being used to communicate about the rationale and the trade-offs and the cost and benefits of these reforms. Uh, so, uh, um, so the World Bank role is important, but I think, and and maybe uh, I'll, I'll close here and go back to uh, to Laura's question. Uh, I think what we heard from Minister Alawi last time is also that there is an official engagement uh, uh, and discussions between the Iraqi government and the IMF in terms of uh, uh, an agenda. Uh, uh, also for the IMF to support both in terms of uh, uh, analytical, technical, but also potentially financial, should there be a new program under a new government. I think this is an important element that uh, financial markets will be looking at, i.e. will the new governments, particularly if there is a, a, another oil shock down the line and uh, for any reason, inshallah, not uh, a reversal of reform, then it's extremely important uh, also to see uh, how uh, both the World Bank and the IMF uh, continue engagement uh, with the authorities post-elections. Great. Thank you, Alia, uh, for, for a great answer to a difficult uh, and, and broad question. Um, so this will be our final final question. And, and thanks, thanks again. Um, Mustafa asks if there is a national strategy for the activation of the private sector, which I think is a really interesting question. Um, do, do any of you as, as panelists have any, any notion of whether or not there is a national strategy for, for the activation of the private sector and, and what it would look like if there is? Well, if I may, um, I mean, there is no like a button you can turn on and activate the private sector. Uh, we do have uh, two kinds of private sector. We have a formal, relatively small private sector, and also we have a large informal private sector. Um, the informal private sector is uh, difficult to measure the size of, uh, but it's there, it's available. To activate it, uh, some of the reforms that have been proposed by the white paper, such as banking reform, because a crucial requirement for a private sector to exist are multiple. Um, Thing, but one of them is a functioning uh, banking sector. So that is crucial there. It addresses also, there's elements that address the regulations, which in our case are extremely hostile to the private sector. There is an element to address those things. So yeah, there are a number of measures, including the devaluation, which should support the private sector. But is there a button to activate it? Not really, but a whole question, a whole um, sequence of measures that together will create an environment where a private sector can thrive. 
Great. Thank you very much, Ahmed. Um, well, thanks to all the panelists. I think we've heard uh, some very interesting ideas about the cautious optimism that maybe we can have that there is perhaps potential for uh, for Iraq to continue on the path of, of reforms, which everyone agrees are needed. There are obviously a lot of pitfalls along the way, and I don't think any of us are expecting to see huge progress in the very immediate future. But it's good to hear from you all that there it's not as, as bleak as maybe uh, we might think sometimes. Um, so uh, all, it, uh, all I am left to do is uh, give a great big thank you to the panelists um, and thank you to everyone who's attended. It's been just wonderful to have so many people uh, here with us at this webinar. And finally, thank you very much to the London School of Economics Middle East Centre, uh, especially Tartif for all of the organisation uh, that went into this. Thank you all very much. And uh, I should remind you too that there's another great panel coming up. Um, uh, state violence in Iraq the PMF and Prospects for Accountability. That's going to start at 1.30 British Standard Time uh, and 3.30 Baghdad Time. Um, so I hope you all enjoy that panel. I hope you've had a good time with us today uh, and it's been useful for you. Thanks a lot and see you soon.